This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Tomorrow night in this city uh, is a very big night for the local music community because Arkells will be, Hamilton's Arkells, will be playing First Ontario Center. Over 10,000 people are going to be in the building. I think it's the biggest crowd they've ever played for. I'd be surprised if they've played for more. But it's not just that it's the biggest crowd maybe they've played for. I can't think that there is another Hamilton band or artist who could draw that kind of crowd these days. Graham Rockingham is the music writer for the Hamilton Spectator, the great music writer for the Hamilton Spectator. He joins us now. Graham, how are you tonight? I'm doing fine, Scott. Yourself? I'm great. So let's jump right into that. What other Hamilton act could put more than 10,000 people into an arena these days? Well, I I, I think you can even go further. Uh, I don't think we've ever had one, especially uh, doing it at home. Not even even Teenage Head or someone like that? Well, Teenage Head, uh, and they should have been able to. Uh, They they had the great punk rock riot on Ontario Place in, I think, 1881. And there was like 15,000 people there. But that was a free show, don't forget. And, uh, and it, was a, it, it was huge for the band and everything. And, it, and that was the, the headline on the, on the Toronto Sun the next day, Punk Rock Riot, full caps. But uh, uh, it, it was a free show. And, uh, and misfortune uh, befell the band uh, right after that because uh, 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 just as they were going to have their big... Uh, uh, showcase in uh, in the United States. Uh, 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 Gord Lewis, their great guitarist, who's still with us and still playing very actively in in this city, uh, uh, had a horrible uh, traffic accident. Was in, ended up in traction for uh, uh, several months. So, and and then you have Crowbar before that, but there, of course there wasn't any local arena like Cops or First Ontario Centre uh, uh, for them to, to sell out. They, they p- performed at Maple Leaf Gardens a couple of times, but only as opening acts or playing with Pierre Trudeau, who was a big enough draw to fill the place <laughs> himself. But, uh, uh, so I don't think, you know, we've had great, great rock and roll bands through the ages uh, come out of this town. Junk House, of course, um, uh, The Killjoys, uh, but I don't think anybody ever had the opportunity to sell out an arena as as uh, uh, the uh, the headliner uh, uh, like the Arkells have and it's an extraordinary thing I don't think the Arkells expected it because when they uh, uh, initially booked first Ontario Center it was they were thinking small they said well we should be able to get 4,000 people in. I mean, that was kind of a no-brainer, because they sold out Massey Hall, which is about 2,500 uh, uh, seats, uh, two nights in a row, very quickly, uh, just in November. And uh, uh, and so they said, well, we can do it again and, and, you know, at, at First Ontario Centre, maybe 4,000. And then the t- and they sold that out quite quickly, so they kept on expanding. That's the nice thing about uh, First Ontario Centre. You can you can just keep adding on and adding on. And by Christmas, they were up in the 8,000, and a couple of weeks ago, that was it, because the configuration they could do was about 10,000. And it's a great configuration for a rock and roll show, too. It's, um, the, the, the stage will be sort of horizontal instead of at the end of the rink, 
and uh, uh, and the floor, uh, the actual rink, will be general admission. Uh, uh, you can stand, you can dance, and then it'll be all the tiers uh, up above it. Uh, it's a fantastic way to see a show. Uh, last time I saw a show like that was Alexis on Fire. They sold that configuration out, too. And a lot of people might say Alexis on Fire is a, a Hamilton uh, band because uh, uh, George Pettit, one of their lead singers, uh, lives here and and several of their members were born here. But that band really started out in St. Catharines. Our Kells are all us. I mean, they, the, the name of the band is... Uh, uh, is taken from a street in Westdale where they used to live uh, uh, when they were going to McMaster. Um, they, they, all their tier, tour gear, and it has been for 10 years, uh, features uh, made in Hamilton type crests. Um, they, they wear Hamilton on their sleeves wherever they go around the world, and, and it's a fantastic thing to see. So, Graham, how has this happened, though? How, because when you think of bands that can sell out an arena now, a big arena, mm-hmm. generally it's with massive support from the record company, from the label behind them, and huge promotion and lots of publicity, and, and the machine has ground out this pulp of a band that finally is what people... This seems to me to be far more grassroots, that it's grown... I, I You know, I, I hate the word with a passion, but I'm going to use it even though it makes my skin crawl. It seems more organic than a lot of those big label <laughs> groups that have been pumped out as, you know, as prefab what ideas. Called, what it's called is hard work and a, and a strong work ethic plus really good songs and uh and 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 putting on a fantastic live show that's been the arkell since the start and i've been following this band uh for over 10 years uh first times i saw them were at the casbah when they're actually called charlemagne they changed their name because somebody had already had that name mm-hmm. um and 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 their their first album uh, uh jackson square was just a demo they had made um, and, and they were fantastic them. I, I remember, although I remember when Jackson Square came out and they launched their tour at the, Pep, the old Pepper Jack Cafe, which no longer, you know, it's now the Club Absinthe on King William. There must have been, like, it was such a great show. And we knew this was a band that was going places, but there was like 65 people there. <laughs> and then we said, good luck. And they went on a cross Canada tour. They were playing to people. To, sometimes to uh, uh, clubs with five people in them, and they kept coming back and playing over and over and over again. Yeah, hardly the overnight success. Hardly an overnight success. Well, you know, they've had four albums now. uh, They've uh, four Juno Awards as well. Um, And and yeah, uh, the last couple of albums have gone more from, you know, they started out as as an electrifying uh, uh, garage band, really. And uh, now they've gone more into the pop area. There's, there's no doubt about that. You know, they're, they're bringing in beats and hooks into their music, um, which which would not be which would not happen for a punk garage band. And 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 that's caught on. I mean, the the the, the, the current uh, song, "My Heart's Always uh, Yours," which is getting millions of streams. I think the last I heard it was 1.5 million streams, which is the way people listen to music now. Uh, is is a pure pop song. It's not indicative of the record, but that one's really uh, uh, caught on. And I think it's a sort of song that could have traction in the States, too. They are finding uh, uh, some success down there. 
it's funny the uh, the opener opening band for uh, 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 the Arkells at uh, First Ontario Center tomorrow night, Frank Turner, they were opening for Frank Turner in the States, because mm. Frank Turner is a big name uh, in, in, in the uh, collegiate crowd in the States, even bigger than the uh, United Kingdom where he's from. And, uh, and, but in Canada, uh, Frank Turner is last year, no, the Arkells are huge, and, and Frank is opening for them. And uh, th- that, those two bands have played a lot together, and they have a very good uh, 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 rapper. Uh, they have a very good uh, camaraderie. They, they appear on stage with each other. I think you'll see Frank Turner uh, 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 playing a Springsteen medley with the Arkells in the middle of the show uh, tomorrow night. Um, and, and believe it or not, Frank Turner, after the show, is going to this ain't Hollywood club down on James Street North and doing a DJ set. Oh. There's, there's, if you're an Arkells fan, and if you don't have a ticket to the show, you might want to head down to uh, This Ain't Hollywood because uh, uh, who knows what's going to happen after the show. <laughs> Graham, you know, it's funny because a few seconds ago when you're describing the genesis and how the, how, the, how Arkells have gotten to where they are, and you talk about playing in the small venues in front of n- sometimes nobody and putting mm-hmm. out the demo and, and all the way through, you know what immediately when you describe that? Now, the music style is vastly different, but the immediate comparison that popped into my head was Bare Naked Ladies, the way yeah, they came well, along and built up their band and brand. Well, they, they had a bit of luck, too. They got, uh, they got uh, banned from... Uh, yes, Nathan Phillips uh, Square. Nathan Phillips Square. <laughs> <laughs> that helps, because they, it, it sounded like they were a bad word. Of course, they were farthest from that. Um, yes, uh, I mean, that was a band that went from busking, uh, even, even more so, uh, to international fame. Um, and And... But it's, similar it's, path. It sounds like a similar path in some ways. It's hard. It's hard work, but you got to have the songs. Uh, Arkells have always had the songs. The nice thing, uh, the thing that always caught me uh, about Arkells is, you know, even as they as they go into pop music, you've got really intelligent lyrics going on. You got guys um, who all graduated from Mac, uh, studying political science. Um, their rock and roll songs, even in the first album, you had uh, a, song, a ballad of Hugo Chavez, <laughs> uh, Champagne Socialist, uh, songs that still appear in their in their set lists uh, right now. Now they've got this. It's funny because they used to do a lot of covers and great covers. Um, they would go into Motown and things like that. They would go into old Brian Adams classics, things like that. Uh, now their catalog is so big, they're pulling out 25 songs uh, uh, all their own every night, um, and, uh, and and they're able to change up the set list every night as well. Max Kerman, the uh, uh, the lead singer, makes up the set list for every show uh, that afternoon, depending on what's going on. I'm sure it's going to be a big one for uh, First Ontario Centre, too. Oh, sure it is. Sure it is. And they're, they're just so stoked for this. Uh, it, it's huge. Um, but it's not their first big uh, show on, on this Across Canada tour. Uh, I think they sold out uh, Thunderbird Stadium uh, at the kickoff February 1st in, in Vancouver, uh, which is not uh, a small place, uh, as you know from sports. And uh, so it's it, it, it's going to be just. I'm looking forward to it so much, you know, and to be able to compare it 
to those show, early shows I saw in the Casbah and at Pepper Jacks, and uh, and to see, you know, it'll it'll be terrific because to see ten thousand people giving them the, I'm sure they'll get an ovation before they even step out on stage. Well, and the other thing is that, and, and we just have a couple minutes left here, but mm-hmm. this is not, in case anyone thinks that this is just, oh, look, Hamilton is just celebrating Hamilton. They are getting uh, huge recognition now outside the city as well. And in fact, I think that's part of the reason why people here are so eager to go to the concert because it's one thing to go and just say, oh, you know, this, this is a local group. It's way more fun to go see a local group that everybody outside your own city also recognizes. That that lends it a whole other level of credibility. What you say is true, and it's funny because uh, uh, I've always been a big fan of John Cowes, uh, Tom Wilson's band that, that had some big hits in the uh, 90s. But John Cowes, they would do better in Amsterdam, in, 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 in Europe, than they would in their hometown. It always frustrated uh, uh, Mr. Wilson. Um, they, would, they would play free concerts and get 800 people out in, in Hamilton. <laughs> and, uh, and they could get 3,000 out in, in, uh, in the Nether- for a show in the Netherlands. So it's good that people are finally appreciating the homegrown ta- talent and uh, as they should and, uh, uh, and there's so many I mean monster truck is doing so well yep. the dirty mill is doing so well these are all bands that are doing arena tours around the world Tara Lightfoot I went to a, a, a CD launch for at the uh, very hip uh, Drake Hotel in Toronto last night and it was packed and and it was terrific the reception the, the crowd gave her there. So people and she just got an award uh, from the Canadian uh, Independent Music Association just last night. It was presented to her at the Drake uh, for uh, uh, for selling twenty five thousand uh, tickets, the equivalent of twenty five thousand tickets in the last year. So she's working the road really hard all around the world. Wherever these bands go, all the ones I just mentioned, they're all proud to tell people they're from Hamilton, Ontario. And uh, as Teenage Head was, as Crowbar was, and, and it's great for the city. It's terrific. There's, there's no bigger selling point than a successful rock and roll band touring the world, um, uh, selling merch that says Hamilton, Ontario on it. And, and, and as the Arkells have been doing for 10 years, you know, you can go into uh, Portland, Oregon, and, and find people wearing Arkell's member, uh, Arkell's shirts and uh, and hoodies. You see it all over the place. It's 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 terrific. It's just uh, fantastic. The only downside for the Arkells this whole year, and we got to go. The only downside, uh, and it doesn't sound like a downside. They've got two nominations for Juno yeah. Awards this year: best album or best rock album and best band. Right. With the best uh, group of the year. Group of the year, both, pardon me. Uh, both uh, categories they've won before, too. But this year, both times, they're up against the Tragically Hip. And while I love Arkells, I've got to think, Graham, that yeah, I don't think anyone's putting any money at Vegas on them winning those two this year. Monster Trucks in the same uh, uh, category <laughs> as well. And, uh, Thanks and for coming all out. All those bands respect each other, but you're right. I mean, uh, it, it was uh, the, the hip pulled at a nation's heartstrings this year, and there is nothing more courageous in music than watching that band do that summer tour uh, uh, across Canada, knowing that 
their front man was dying. And, uh, and, and yes, what, what really, and, and what really uh, is going to be interesting in the Junos, because the other great story in uh, Canadian rock or Canadian music was the death of Leonard Cohen. Gord Dowdy and Leonard Cohen are up against each other for Songwriter of the Year. Pick that one, not me. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah, no, yeah, that is, uh, yeah, that will be the, uh, the the who has the sadder story version, and I don't know that either one because they're both pretty sad, unfortunately. Uh, they're Graham, sad, but they're wonderful. Well, stories that's true too. Secret Path by Dowdy has had yep. such a huge impact in raising Indigenous uh, issues in this country, probably more than anything in recent history. And and, and Leonard Cohen wrote a beautiful record uh, that really. He, he knew he was dying, and it, for, it, for an artist of his caliber to be able to write something knowing it would be his last and for telling, for telling what was to come, it, it, extraordinary piece of work. He and David Bowie both went out in a similar there fashion. Graham Rockingham from The Spectator. Uh, you will definitely be able to read Graham's review of the Arkells concert uh, in Saturday's paper, online at thespec.com, depending on I'll how be late it goes. I'll online uh, uh, right after the show. As soon as I get in the office, I'll be tapping away and putting it up. Uh, it probably won't be in print until the Monday. Uh, I think our, our uh, award-winning photographer, Scott Gardner, will be uh, uh, backstage, and he'll have a, a whole lot of great shots, too. And, uh, and I, I expect maybe we'll get a, find a full page of photos from Perfect. that show. Graham, thanks for doing this tonight. Appreciate it. Take care. Graham Rockingham of The Spectator and thespec.com. You can read his stuff there. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. One year ago from today, you're going to be doing one of two things. You're going to be listening to this show, which is my goal for you, really. I want to welcome you into the warm bosom of this show every opportunity I get. But my next guest, as much as I would like that to be the case, I am actually quite sure that he will not be. He will be watching the opening of the PyeongChang Olympics in South Korea because that's just the stuff that he does. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH's Sports. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing fine there, my friend. Yourself? Uh, listen, I'm doing okay. I, I was going to ask you for a, a guarantee, a promise, that you would not watch the opening of the Olympics and be tuned into the Scott Radley Show this time next year, but I, I won't do that to you. No, I think the, the choice is easy. <laughs> oh, thanks. Well, you know what? Here's an interesting story that comes out of this. Because, again, it was it is one year ago tonight, and there is a data company, uh, what's the name of it, Grace Note, that has looked at all the athletes and all the competitions and everything else. I don't know how they've done this a year out, because there's only a trillion different things that can happen between now and then. But it says that Canada is going to finish fourth at the Winter Olympics a year from now, uh, we are going to win 29 medals, uh, 9 gold, 9 silver, and 11 bronze. Bubba, you going to wow. put money down on their prediction? Yes, boy. <laughs> that, that would put us fourth behind Norway, uh, Germany, and uh, the United States. You know, I, I could see definitely a top five finish. I think that's, you know, for the Winter Games, I think that's certainly a realistic goal. I mean, to put a number on it, I think, is, is difficult always. I mean, because, I mean, there's always the shocker, the shocking goals. Of course. And there's, all, and there's also the disappointing bronze medals, right? Or fourth place finishes, which we, we as a country are sometimes well known for in sports. 
Um, but I think that I think I think that's realistic to say top five for definitely the winter games. And we, certainly, if it was the summer games, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that high. We really are known for those two things, aren't we? We're known for the shocking medals where we come out of nowhere, and oftentimes in sports that we don't normally know much about. Mm-hmm. But we're also known, yeah, for those fourth place finishes where we miss the podium by one one hundredth of a second. It's insane how many times that happens, but. Uh, I, I'm, I will say this, from my years of covering sports and obviously even being younger watching sports and, you know, obviously loving the Olympics and the international competition, I'm glad we've kind of gotten over – actually, I'll change that. I'm glad that we have now put an expectation on our athletes and even an expectation on ourselves to, to follow not only follow the sports and learn more about the sports, but hope that we medal, not just – have the attitude of wow he he or she got a personal best like, yeah they got a personal best and finished 39th yeah I, but I, I yippee felt like we were we were i felt like we were very satisfied with that many years ago and i don't think that's the, the same anymore and you know what that's okay if you're one of those olympians who's going you're very young you're in your first olympics you're getting the experience and you're an up-and-coming athlete and you finish 40th or whatever, but you do really well. I think there's great value in that, even if you don't land on the podium because you're looking down the road. But there was a time, you're absolutely right, when our best would be doing that in their third Olympics and and we'd be thinking, well, come on, he had fun. And, and that has changed. And, and some people will say, no, come on. If they go to the Olympics, they should be able to have fun and just have a personal best and feel good. I, I, I'm with you. I think that we, if we're spending all this money on Own the Podium, there is a reasonable expectation of some level of success. I am with you for it. And I think, um, I think if you really sit down and talk to the athletes, I don't think they mind that pressure. Um, hmm. It's what fuels them to some extent. Um, they want to if you want to say give back to the country after the, you know, whatever you said to give, you know, we've certainly contributed much more money to, to the whole process. And certainly the training of a lot of these athletes, I don't think it's up to the United States level. Of course, I think we've got a long way to go, but I still believe that the, the, we are committing more. And I think putting our athletes on a higher pedestal than we did just maybe even a, a decade ago. The big question, of course, still around the Olympics one year out is whether or not the NHL guys are going to be there. Um, d- have you developed really strong feelings on this? Because I've got to be honest, I'm, I vacillate. I go back and forth. I go from the point where they have to be there or the whole thing is a sham to, you know what, I'd almost be happier if they weren't there. I, I, I'm, I can't decide which side of this I'm on. Uh, I've changed. I, I mean, I'm pretty much of the mindset that the Olympics uh, have put themselves in a situation where it's the best on best. And at this point, we can't. I don't know if we can go back from not having the National Hockey League competitors in the game at this point any longer. And I think anything below that becomes somewhat of a disappointment. And I also think it goes. It will go it, as, as maybe as competitive as it may be with junior hockey kids and a combination of Canadian nationals, like some of the players that we would see on a yearly basis at the Spangler Cup, um, the guys that are competing in Europe, I think it'll be a big drop-off of interest for the sport. I think you just can't go back. And if the National Hockey League decide not to go, not to go, I, I, I really hope they don't get into this situation where they feel like they can bully the IOC and say, okay, we're not going to go here, but we're going to go here. A lot of the complaints I'm hearing from the league is that, well, the games are at, you know, 
odd times of the hour. They are. They are. They, and they're going to be right in the middle of the night or early, early, early in the morning. And, and some well, of the so times... every other event. You know, that's like, true. We, we can't say that hockey's more important than downhill skiing or whatever. That's the, that's the way it is. It's on the other side of the earth. We can't just pick and choose to say that you know, I don't think that the... The NHL can just pick and choose to say, okay, well, they're in North America this year or in a time zone that's suitable for our, you know, our fans of our league. Uh, to me, that's, that's, that's crap. See, you know what I would not object to, I'll be honest with you, because because the games are on in the middle of the night, and sometimes when I say middle of the night, like a 4 a.m. start where, i got to be honest, um, my day is going to be completely messed up if I have to get up at 4 to watch hockey. By the time I do a show or by the evening, I'm going to be done. But that's just a personal thing. Um, there's a lot of people who want to see it. But I'd be okay if they were to say for this Olympics, because of the time it is, you know what, this is going to be a truly amateur competition. I, I, I would actually, for this one, I'd be okay with that. And I, and I didn't think I would be because I love... Bubba, I love watching the NHL players in the Olympics. Vancouver was amazing. Sochi was great. I love that stuff. But I'm okay, I would be okay with trying it again as long as, and this is where you get into the difficulty, as long as we don't send a bunch of junior or college guys and the Russians or whoever else sends all their, their pros and it becomes a sham. But that, but, but the hold on, that's become that 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 then becomes the choice of the National Hockey League because you have several players from several countries other than Canada that say we don't care about what the NHL's decision. Alex Ovechkin, I'm going to represent my country. I don't care if I get suspended or fined. So if Canada is in a, stuck in a situation where they have to use the Canadian national players from the Spangler Cup teams and European teams and, and select junior players, that, that, that's that's that, whose fault is that? Yeah, that's you not, know, it's not, that's not the Olympics' fault. No, it's no, it's not the Olympics' fault. It wouldn't be the Olympics' fault. I, I would, I would even on the Olympic year. And again, I, other people have mentioned this before. I think this could be really intriguing. I would even be okay with the Olympics being the World Junior Tournament for that year. And and there will be there would be problems with that. I don't dispute well, there will be problems. How can we how, why don't we just make it real simple? Okay? The year that we want to have that that there's a, an opportunity for NHL players to participate uh, in the Olympic Games and I don't think many players would disagree with this. Take away the All Star game. That whole yes, yes. Take, take that away and take away this legislated NHLPA bye week, which lasts for five uh, five days for each team. All right, so we already have a situation where teams aren't playing once a year or twice uh, once a year where they're not playing for five games. So that's almost a week right there. And take away this nonsense with the All Star Game, which in itself is probably a four to five day break. Uh, the league can hold on for a week on top of that for the great opportunity of showcasing its game and its players in the biggest stage in the world. As much as we do love the Stanley Cup, and we're Canadian and we're growing up to believe that's the championship, that every single player that dreams of playing in the National Hockey League, that's the dream, is to win and lift that Stanley Cup. But the Olympics, has, I think, and you just talked about it, what happened in Vancouver? What happened in Salt Lake City? Even some of the some of the times that we lost in Torino and in the, in Prague, or not Prague, uh, 
1998 games. I can't remember when we got. You're talking about the one in in Japan, Nagano. Nagano, thank you, Nagano with with Dominic Hasek. Those are memories that are etched in the in the brains of all of us for hockey. And to not have the NHL players, the best of the best, playing the best on the best, and don't and, and and I'm sorry, the World Cup isn't the best on best either. This is where they, where these athletes shine. No, the, the World Cup, uh, much as it may have tried, failed to capture mine and I think an awful lot of other people's interest entirely. It seemed to me like it was a forced NHLPA moneymaker. Absolutely. The Olympics always have seemed to matter. They, the players will die to win an Olympic medal, and it's, that, that's the way it's always seemed. They will do anything to win an Olympic gold medal, and, and that, that makes it ma- But again... The only reason I say this, if this was Vancouver still, if this was in a time zone when we would be able to watch these things, and, and uh, I would, I would be okay. I, I'm almost at the point, as I say, where if you know, if they don't want to do it this year because of the time, I, uh, all right, I, 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 I can't buy it. I can't. You know what? Was, you know what was real special for me recently, and I mean, and you know, I'm a big tennis fan. I thought it was fantastic. I loved waking up. I, I, I mean, yeah, did I have, was I sleep deprived? Absolutely, <laughs> but I, but I thought it was spectacular. To watch the 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 what happened with Roger Federer uh, playing, you know, waking up in the early in the morning to watch Milos Raonic uh, compete and maybe even win his first Grand Slam at three thirty in the morning to watch matches between Serena Williams. You know, I'm also a big Formula One fan. I pleasure in waking up on Sunday mornings when really I maybe I went to bed late at night, but I, it's a big fun thing for me and a special thing to me. It also kind of reminds me like being a kid back in the day when you watched when you couldn't watch a particular sporting event in your own time zone. I think I think that's I think that's part of it. I think that's I think that's one of the special things about the about the event. It's not just in North America. Do you we're as I say, we're a year out. Uh leaving aside the hockey for a second, does is it way too early despite this this study by this data company is it way too early to be thinking about this stuff or or do we should we be starting to think because here's the thing every time we come to the olympics and if it's the winter olympics we suddenly start watching skeleton and bobsleigh and all these things we've never watched before should we be getting more of this stuff on our tv in the year ahead should companies should sports channels be saying hey you know what here's the world bobsleigh championships this is this weekend's event we're going to put it on you know why because then when the olympics roll around you know who these people are we started doing that with junior hockey we've started doing that with other things should we be expecting the companies to do that so they so we can be more intelligent viewers when 2018 rolls around I think the companies do an outstanding job here, and I'm not talking about CTV, TSN, Sportsnet. They, they do an outstanding job, I think, weeks before CBC. I, uh, I forgot to say them, obviously. I, I, think, I think the reality is that not everyone's going to run to the television to watch the uh, Skeleton World Championships two years outside. I think there could be interest in these event, many of these events one year before outside of the Olympics. I, I do believe that. And I think I would be okay. I would watch a bobsled championship or a, a luge or, a, you know, obviously I think the highest profile event is probably skiing right now. We do get a lot of that on our television right now. You can actually follow the FIS season throughout the, the year. And, and, and there are some big names there. You know, we just had Eric Gay, who, you know, at 35 years old, you know, finished first recently this week. Lindsey Vaughn's a big story for the females, et cetera. 
Um, I, yeah, if, if there's more of that stuff on TV, I think it can only help. But I certainly do believe that the companies that present the Olympics right now do an outstanding job of preparing us just, just months before about who these athletes are with more features on you know, TV shows like TSN and, 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 and uh, Sportsnet's uh, um, news shows. So I, I, I think they do a good job right now on that. Got to go. But, uh, hey, let me ask you this. Uh, this just came in. Tonight on Jeopardy. Did you hear about this? Tonight on Jeopardy? The category was World Newspapers. Bubba, the answer on Jeopardy tonight. See if you can tell me what the proper question is, and please form this, phrase this in the form of a question. World Newspapers, Hamilton Spectator, what country? The Hamilton Spectator made Jeopardy today as an answer. How about that, huh? Alex Trebek. Well, I, I would have thought he would have gone with Thunder Bay Chronicle. He's a Thunder Bay guy. <laughs> oh, that's too tough. <laughs> that's you don't think that the, the people on Jeopardy would have known where Thunder Bay was? No, I don't think you're getting too many buzzers hit. There may be the odd that could tell you with uh, Hamilton, because at least maybe if they'd been to Toronto at some point, they're like, oh, yeah, that place. You know, you know who was really ticked off watching this? Pete Diakowski going, why couldn't that have been a question when I was on? I get all the hard questions. Hamilton Ticat, Pete Diakowski, didn't go all that well for him. He's sitting there going, why could that not have been my week? He should have stopped with the CBC show. <laughs> he was, well, funny thing, and Pete, uh, Pete told me this afterwards. I said, did you mention, because before, before, before I saw it, it had been pre-taped, and, and I knew a little bit about it, not much, and I said, did you mention that you had been named Canada's, or you won the contest for Canada's Smartest Man? And he goes, yeah, you know, I thought I'd better save that until I'd actually won an episode so I don't look like a complete buffoon if it goes sideways, which it kind of did. I thought it was a wise move by Pete. It showed that he was Canada's smartest man. Uh, you know, he is. He is definitely smarter than your average right tackle. <laughs> or left tackle, or right guard, or left guard, or center, uh, or most of those guys, but he is. Uh, Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, thank you very much, sir. Have a great evening. Uh, it was a pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You can, uh, you can tune in and see Bubba tonight at 11... 20 something ish on CHCH this evening, and with I guess with the weather earlier on. Anyway, 11 o'clock. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. So, as we've talked this week, we mentioned that two days ago was the day in 1964 the Beatles touched down in New York City, landed in New York to start the British invasion that changed lots of things. Well, it was two days later till today. February 9, 1964, that the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan. It was a Sunday night then. And they went on Ed Sullivan. And, well, you know what happened after that. Pop, culture, music, all kinds of things changed as a result of that performance. And they had two more performances on Ed Sullivan every successive Sunday after that for three Sundays in total. But the thing is, Ed Sullivan was a variety show. The Ed Sullivan, Ed Sullivan show was a variety show. It wasn't just the Beatles. They were not the only thing that was on. There were multiple acts of all different kinds. And so earlier this week, we were thinking as we were talking about this, okay, so somebody then had to come on after the Beatles or right before them when they played their second set. And I don't think that would have been a particularly great place to be. I got to be honest. My initial thought is you do not want to come on right after one of the biggest acts ever or right before one of the biggest acts ever. Well, got thinking, who is that? Who is who was that? I had to do some research. I'd never heard of it. Well, it turns out that was McCall and Brill, Mitzi McCall and Charlie Brill, who were a young married comedy duo who I'm guessing, we're going to bring them on here, who I'm guessing thought 
an appearance on Ed Sullivan would be the greatest thing ever to happen to their career, to their young careers. Um, I'm going to find out if it was. They join me now, Mitzi and Charlie. Thanks for doing this tonight. Hey, hi, how are you? We're fantastic. How are you? Did I hear that it's minus nine in Hamilton? It is. Uh, it is close to minus nine, and we've got a little snow up here, so it's you know it's very Canadian right now. Fabulous. <laughs> and to think of how famous you are, you had a Broadway show written about you. This is, My yeah, God. absolutely, this is true. We had no idea that we had really been up here part of the creation of the United States, but, uh, you know, it's good to know. <laughs> so tell me, when when we go back to this story, and I, I said that you probably, I'm guessing you guys thought when you were going to go on the Ed Sullivan show that this was going to be the thing that would launch you absolutely. to greatness, uh, was it? Absolutely, no. it, it, we, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> the night, it, it was a terror. Was it? it? Was a nightmare. Yes. Okay, so let's let's go back and go through some of this because I think this story is fascinating. I first of all, it's fifty three years, and yet I'm guessing that you probably remember it very well still, partially because of the Beatles, but also because it was the Ed Sullivan Show. That was the big time. Getting invited there was huge. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Right. You. You. Your career was. We almost made. And our manager, when he called and said, you know what? I just booked you on the Ed Sullivan show. And we went, <laughs> with the Beatles. And we went, who? Yeah. Well, how far, advanced, how far in advance was that? How long did you actually prepare for this night? Uh, I guess maybe it was like three weeks. Okay. Like that. Three weeks. Mm-hmm. Is that right, Charlie? Yeah, you know? about, yeah. About three weeks, yeah. Um, no. And was the, was that whole three weeks then, knowing that you were going on Ed Sullivan, knowing how big a deal, what the size of the audience was, was that whole three weeks then preparing that one skit that was going to be? Yes, we, we, we broke in what we were going to do on the Ed Sullivan show in nightclubs. We were playing nightclubs at the time, so we tried out that piece of material, and it went over phenomenally. So that was what we were going to do on the Ed Sullivan show. We were ready rehearsed. Okay, and so you get to New York, and you're in your dressing room, or the night before, or whenever it was. We have, Scott, we have to explain. We get to New York. We didn't know who the Beatles were, uh, and uh, the streets are roped off, and there's such a screaming and yelling out in the street. We're not even in the studio yet. And then we kind of, you know, did our, I can't even call it a homework, because, I mean, this was it. No, I... (laughs) I said to Mitzi, I can't believe how famous Frank Gorshin got. <laughs> now, for those who remember, Frank Gorshin ended up playing the Riddler on, on the Batman series. That's where a lot of people would he know him from. Impressionist. Right. He was a I friend thought, of ours. I thought he became very famous overnight. <laughs> those crowds, I thought, were for him. <laughs> so you really, I mean, honestly, you really, and it's not a surprise, I suppose, but you really had no idea who the Beatles no. were. No. No. No, no. I wish I could akin it to something. I mean, it would be like asking maybe, uh, except the social media is so strong. Sure, sure. Now, I was going to say, like, if we would not that we were old enough to be grandparents, but if you maybe to ask your uh, a grandma who uh, uh, who Kanye West is, right? Okay, she might all right. No. So you get there though, and there's all these screaming girls outside, we and it's chaos. On and, and we got to wear. We got to wear badges, 
special badges as soon as we went get in, in the stage door. Okay. Okay, and then I understand from reading up on this that you get there and you've got this this bit now that you've worked on and you've planned and it's all ready to go. And as you say, it's killed in the in the in the nightclubs. And Ed Sullivan knocks on your door and says, "No, he doesn't knock." Mr. Sullivan does not knock on anybody. We did, we, we did dress rehearsal. Okay. Yeah. And and we, we didn't know that every CBS executive in the world was in the audience <laughs> and their children to see the Beatles. So then we just get back to the dressing room. We slumped through it. Yeah. Which, by the way, the dressing room, because we were the new people in town, the new kids in town, was the uh, where the musicians really uh, you know hung out. And it had a Coca-Cola machine inside of our dressing room. And, uh, and we were high up, and we could look down and see. We finished dress rehearsal. Hundreds of people. And over the loudspeaker, McCall and Verl come to Mr. Sullivan's office. Did that sound like a loudspeaker? <laughs> I probably shouldn't have done that. Okay. <laughs> and so you and go to the office. We dutifully... Uh, ran down these stairs and walked it and said, where's Mr. Sullivan's office? And they told us, and we walked in. And he said, you know, I think what you're doing is wonderful, uh, but it's not for my audience. You know, I have 14-year-old kids out there, and they're not going to be able to follow, nor will, will they want to follow the story of what your material is. And, and Scott, what it was is, the same two people on telephones through different stages of their lives. Like they were start out and they're really kids, uh, then they're teenagers, then they're in their 20s, these same two people, and then they're in their elder years like we are right now, right? And the thing that they said when they were little kids, they say when they're old, uh, but it has a different meaning. And it was, it, if it was done right, it, it should give you like a little choke in your heart. So Mr. Sullivan, as, in essence, was right. They wouldn't have sat through that. So he said then, what else can you do? That's <laughs> when the panic set in. Instead of saying, thank you very much, we'll come back at another time, we did our entire act. You know, <laughs> we were dancing as fast as we could, and we're not dancers. So already it wasn't good. And now, I know that this was a big deal, uh, that the Beatles were going to appear. But to us, it was a big deal because Mitzi and Charlie. Exactly. We were so self-centered and so, uh, you know, arrogant to think that anyone would even listen to us. I mean, but that's how we felt, you know. We were so self-absorbed as we didn't only youth miss, can be. We didn't want to miss that shot. Of course not. Of course not. We showed him everything, everything in our act, which yes. we worked a lot like Mike Nichols and Elaine May. Well, that's, yeah. Uh, we, we, we did sketches. We were more like actors doing, okay, you know, okay. once in a while a little funny line would come in. Okay, so you settle. mainly actors. So you so, finally settle so on one of them. What? You finally settle on one of the bits that you're going to do. No, no, and no, he, no, no, we didn't. No? Mr. Sullivan said, okay, take the girl from the first sketch. Yeah. Put her in the second sketch that you did with the laughing and the crying. Yes. And then take you, uh, Charlie, you do what you did in the third sketch 
and it'll all come together. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Oh, sure, Mr. Solomon. Solomon, whatever. Yeah, whatever you say. The office closed the door and said, do you know what he said? No, I don't. Oh, we didn't know what he was talking about. What are we going to do? Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, oh. So, so was, it, was, there a, was there a high level of panic at that point? Panic was what we were hoping for. This was worse than panic. <laughs> and it would have been the good news. Yeah. Yeah, that was the good news, the panic. We get into the dressing room, and we don't know what to do. But I said to myself, you know what? We have to carpe this diem. We cannot let this night go by without having something to talk about other than that Mr. Sullivan changed our material. So I, nervy little person that I am, went back downstairs and walked into the Beatles rehearsal. Okay? Now, in the meantime, I had had a Coca-Cola. This is part of the story, Scott. And I go in sipping this Coke, and the Beatles are all sitting there. And John Lennon looked at me, and he said, Give us a Coke, Lord. You should give us a Coke, Lord. <laughs> went, oh, God. I said to the stage manager, What does he want? And the stage manager laughed and said, what he wants is a Coke love. <laughs> I went, oh, okay. All right. So I handed him my, you know, my Coca-Cola, and I said, here. And he was very sweet and, you know, thanked me. And then it was time for us to go back to our dressing room and really prepare for the big time. And as we were walking up the stairs, there was a window in the stairwell and I looked down, and I said to John Lennon, who by now was my best friend, I gave him a Coke. Uh, sure. <laughs> and I said, can you believe this is all for you? And he said, it's not for me, it's for Ringo. <laughs> well. So I thought, I mean, we thought he said that there was like a Jewish word, for Ringo, <laughs> or a Jewish holiday. We didn't know what for Ringo meant. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's funny that they're speaking the Queen's English and we can't understand them. Oh. Well, anyhow, my dear, uh, we so, did something that we had never done in our life. We didn't know what we were doing. We got through it. I mean, obviously, we're still here, you know. I mean, sure. we didn't die. We thought we would. Uh, and uh, that's... Do you, now, do you, Charlie, tell what happened a week later. Okay. Now... We did so badly. We thought. Uh, we, we thought we did badly. And that we, we didn't want to come home to Los Angeles. So I said, let's go visit my grandma and grandpa in Florida so we don't go right home to, to, to jeers and scorns. <laughs> so we went to Hollywood, Florida, and we're walking along the street late at night, and we hear, Psst, and there's a limo following us. And the window rolls down, and it's John Lennon. We had forgotten that they played Florida the next week. <laughs> and he says, what are you doing here? And I said, escaping from you, you ruined our career. <laughs> that's, that's, that's hilarious. Did it you... is hilarious. It is. It made me laugh just hearing it. Charlie, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah. Did and, you do, did, when you look back, have you watched, you must have watched the tape since then. Yes, finally, of course. How long it did it take you? It many years, though, however, Scott. Did it? It took you a while to get around to doing it? because it yeah. us years to get around to it. Because you thought you had died up there? Yes. Yeah. And we didn't. We did not die. But the thing that got the biggest laugh 
was when I happened to say I was backstage ready to come on and I stepped on a beetle. <laughs> and they, the audience, got hysterical. And that, and then it was downhill from that. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. That what? was it. That was our high point. Did you now? You were on shortly after they finished their first set, and you had to lead right into their second set. Did you stick around to watch? Did you have any interaction I, with them at the show? Yeah, I did. I, I watched in the wings, and uh, number one, you could not hear a note they sang. They were screaming in the audience, so I couldn't hear anything. But looking at the kids' faces, I knew. Something was happening, something very important, and that music was going to change what they were doing. Yeah, yeah. Did how long did it take you? And I, I can't imagine, that, I mean, you had a sense that night, but I have to imagine it took some years. But how long after did you realize that that moment that you were involved in, even if it wasn't necessarily your favorite moment, really was a moment of history for pop culture, for music, for America? Maybe... How, maybe. I don't know, years, yeah. three years, Although years, we I don't did, know. We did get a clue when we went to Florida right afterwards to visit Grandma and Grandpa. There were kids that just wanted to touch us because we worked That's right. Beatles. You're right, honey, you're right. Really? Really? Yeah. It was that quick? Yeah. yeah, because they had seen us the week before. Yeah, That's true. And, 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 and one little girl, I'll never forget, she was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, oh. I mean, really hysteria. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. And it sort of sunk in, and then certainly, you know, years later, I mean, my, my goodness, it was like the worst night of our life became like the most amazing night of our life. You sure, know? you'd been part of something that no one, I mean, very few people could ever imagine. Well, we right. still to this day don't know what Beringo is. <laughs> <laughs> had you ever thought, though, either Charlie or, or Mitzi, have you ever thought, I mean, that was certainly very cool to be there that night, but had you been there the week before or four weeks later when the Beatles were gone and you had been able to do the piece that you really wanted to do, had you ever thought about how your career might have been different? It must have crossed no. your mind. No, we don't. No, because, you no. know what, I hate to look back, first of all. Woulda, coulda, shoulda. Yeah, uh-huh. We have the same sensibility, Charlie and I. That's why we're married for... Fifty-six years. Fifty-seven. Fifty-seven. Whoops. <laughs> Have you? Did you ever do that Beatles night oh, Ed yeah, Sullivan show piece again? Palace. We did it. Yes, and it was fabulous, wonderful. We were on with the with a band then called the Baja Marimba Band, and uh, and then we did it again on the E Adams show. Yes. So uh, we and that have piece of material it. served us well. It has a great. Of material. And you know how we got the piece of material? Charlie and I met at the Jerry Lewis Comedy Workshop. And I know, like, your listeners probably go, yeah, 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 yeah. But honest to gosh, you've got to believe me. Jerry Lewis was the hottest, biggest thing. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis were like, ah, I, I can't. And so Jerry Lewis, I mean, I can't tell you enough how brilliant they were. Um, anyhow... We wrote this piece of material. The Jerry Lewis Workshop. He had a workshop at Paramount Studios. And, and I'm going to go a little bit off the, the beaten track for a minute there. This was the, uh, about the time that Dean and Jerry were breaking up. 
And Charlie and I went to Las Vegas, and who was there but Dean Martin? Now, Mickey, you were in, tell them that you were in a movie with them. I was, called You're Never Too Young. I was in a movie with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis that was like maybe the last movie that they did together. And who do I see in Las Vegas but Dean Martin? And I go, oh, my gosh, Charlie, you've got to come and meet him. Come here. And I, the two of us walked over, and we, I said, Dean, Dean, this is my fiancé. His name is Charlie Brill, and we're in the Jerry Lewis workshop. And he said, what are you doing? Trying to teach Jerry how to be funny? <laughs> is that funny? We have um, we have just a minute or so left here. I, I just want to ask you. I want to go back for one second. When you I were, I want to go to. I want to go where you are <laughs> and meet everyone. Oh, go ahead. When you were waiting to go on that yes. night on Ed Sullivan, yes, and you saw the reaction. You had seen all the girls outside. You heard the screaming in rehearsal. You yes. knew it was. Had it dawned on you even before you stepped out there no, that following no, these guys was we going to be blazed, too selfish and self centered. To think about anything but that we are going on that show. Ed Sullivan and show. Please. We were going on the Ed Sullivan show. It was all about us. Yeah. Self-centered and, you know, selfish little brats. No, you know, anyone who got that opportunity, it wouldn't be selfish. You're looking out for your career, absolutely. And, and look, if it hadn't happened, I can guarantee you, well, maybe not guarantee, I could guess that if it hadn't happened 53 years later, radio people from Canada would not be calling you to ask about it. You know, but <laughs> you're right. You're right. You're right. Now, yeah. if any of your listeners want to call in and tell me what Faringo means, <laughs> Charlie. Thank you, Hamilton. Thank you for even listening to a word of what we have to say. It is a great. I, I could meet all of you, but unfortunately, we live in LA. Oh, we'll be there soon. Well, oh, it... we'll be there soon. You drop in Don't anytime you like. Keep us out. Drop in anytime you like. You're welcome on the show any night you like. You come through Hamilton, Mitzi McCall, and Charlie Brill. There's a spot around the table for you. Thanks for doing this tonight. Really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Bye-bye. That is uh, Mitzi McCall and Charlie Brill. And again, if you go and watch, because, you know, the thing is, the you can go online now. The entire first show of the Ed Sullivan Show with the Beatles is online in its entirety. You can go and watch. You can watch their routine. You can watch the whole thing. And you can see what they were facing because it was, as I said off the top, it was probably, they didn't realize that they say at the moment, the single worst position for anyone to have to be in to follow the Beatles. Let's be honest. There is no upside when the crowd is full of 14-year-old girls who are screaming their brains out and want to see the Beatles for you to come out and try and do a bit of a an upscale, erudite, thinking comedy bit that was put together by Ed Sullivan just a few hours before before you have to perform it because he told you that the piece you worked on for three weeks wasn't going to fly. That's a bit of a spot, isn't it? Mitzi McCall and Charlie Real really appreciate them doing that tonight. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.